You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. I love that sound. All the children of our church finding their way. Let me invite you while they're on their way to turn and find your way to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 19. Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 19. This is the week. This is an exciting week, um, an awesome week of celebration for us as uh, so many of us have, have plans with family and friends. We're looking forward to Christmas Eve together here and then Christmas morning. I don't know any better place that the people of God could be than together on Christmas morning celebrating what Jesus has done for us. This really is a fantastic week. And we're reminded this morning that the Christmas season is ultimately a time to exalt Jesus as King. And that's why we are actually blessed to be in the book of Revelation during this Christmas season. You know, every, every Christmas season, or usually the month of December, we, we try to plan a different series of sermons that we feel the church is in particular need of. And this week, or this month, we have decided to stay in the book of Revelation Because this gives us an opportunity to be reminded in such clear color what Christmas really is all about. We have tried over the years to avoid the temptation to divorce Christmas, the coming of Jesus as a baby into our world, from the ultimate reason that he came. And that's just so easy to do. This is what we need as believers. It's so easy for us to separate Jesus from his ultimate redemptive plan, even during this time of year. I think we all kind of feel that. There are so many great things going on. There are great foods, and and we're setting up all different kinds of decorations, and the lights are are bright and beautiful, and we have so much fellowship and and enjoyment together of, of this time of year. We're looking forward to maybe it's snowing on that day. And there's so many things that are so good, but it's easy for them to become distractions. It's easy for them to overshadow what Christmas morning really is all about. And so we need this reminder, and I'm thankful that we can have it this morning in the book of Revelation. Because as we are preparing to celebrate the first coming of our king, this morning, actually, we have a text about the second coming of our king. And that's why we want to be reminded this morning and this week and on into the next year, the ultimate reason that Jesus came. And to avoid that temptation for it to be divorced, and we get fixated on the baby in the manger, but miss out on the real reason for the season. Not only is this really important for us as God's people, as a church, it's also really important for the world. This is what our world needs. Because if you think that it's easy for us to overlook this, imagine how easy and common it is for the world to overlook this. But we want to be clear with the watching world. We want them to know what is the real meaning of Christmas? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? If you were to go out into the world and ask, who is Jesus? What does Christmas mean? The world would get close to some of those basic details, but there certainly would be a misunderstanding about why he came. It's easy for the world to look and even look at our traditions and the story of Christmas and conclude that that Christmas is really about a baby, 
But rather than being about a baby who grew to be a king and then to conquer sin and death in the world and to be the ultimate reigning champion of the world, it's very easy for the world to just fall back into that routine of thinking, well, Jesus came as a baby so that he could grow up to be a good guy and he could go around and sort of tell people that they're forgiven, but that's really it. He's sort of reduced to this good guy that kind of walks around in the world. He does good things. He, he, he's, he's meek and mild. He, he's not too difficult to work with. But really, who is Jesus? And that's what we want to see this morning. We want this reminder of why Jesus came on that Christmas morning so many years ago. And so what we are going to see this morning is the second coming of Christ. And we pray that God would use this text to remind us and to to even infuse our Christmas celebration with this forward-looking victory of Christ and help us to celebrate maybe, for some of us, in a way that we never have before. That when we wake up on Christmas morning and when we have our traditions and when we read the birth narrative in the Gospels, that it wouldn't end there in our hearts and minds, but that our hearts and minds would quickly go to the ultimate purpose that Jesus came. So treat three truths this morning about Jesus that we can remember and we can meditate on as we make our way toward this wonderful morning of Christmas. And here's the first that we see in verses 11 through 13. That Jesus is, and he came to be, even as a baby, the exalted word of God. Notice in verse 11 that John says, he saw heaven opened and behold then he tells us this description of the one who is coming, this one that we know is Jesus, the one who came as a baby many years ago, but has come for this purpose. And then what John gives us in his vision is an exaltation of Jesus that is off the charts. How do you know that someone is exalted? How do you know that they are important or they're doing well or they have power. Well, one way is someone could tell you that. Someone could tell you about someone who has power, but you'd have to believe them. And and if something to the contrary in what you could see were to come up, you might stop believing that that's true because it's only someone's word. But how do we in this world really know that someone is exalted even out in the unbelieving world? The way that it happens is by seeing is by seeing the evidence of exaltation. This is one of the things that has made the Christmas story story difficult to, to keep a hold of, both the coming of Jesus, meek and mild, and his ultimate conquering reign over the world in the end. Because we can't quite see it yet. But that's the way that it works in our world when we want to examine someone and see if they are exalted or they have power and control or wealth. We look with our eyes to see them. We look at the way that they dress. We look at the kind of car that they drive. We look at the kind of money that they have. We look at their appearance overall. We listen to the words that they say, and then we make our judgments. In fact, that's what the world is is wanting us to do. The world is wanting us to to give in to that and, and to chase after that. You've seen the commercials. They're commercials that I don't know anything about. When the husband and wife, they come out on Christmas morning and, and one or the other unveils the gift of a brand new Lexus. Look at what I got you for Christmas. 
That's the message. And that's how you know that someone is exalted. You see what they have. You see what they look like. Well, that is something that will happen in the end. Because Jesus will not only be known as exalted on the basis of someone telling the world, when he comes again, they will see him. And they will see that he is exalted like none other. Listen to the exaltation of Jesus when he comes the second time. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, clear picture of victory and purity. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. You'll notice in just these few verses that Jesus, the one who is coming on the white horse, has four names. Three are known and one is not. Here are the first two, that he is faithful and he is true. Those are simple words that we understand, but they are exponentially magnified in Jesus Christ. There's no one more faithful. There's no one more true. That's the point of this this whole unfolding picture of his second coming in the vision of John. He is reliable, faithful, dependable, and he is real. No one is as real as he is. He is true and trustworthy and faithful. He goes on and says, and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. This is an image that that communicates to us penetrating judgment. That he can see into every heart and mind. That is both a thrilling reality to know that there is someone in the universe who knows all about every single person. He knows everything that's happening in the world and he has power to deal with it. But it is also a terrifying reality that with his penetrating eyes of fire, he can see into the hearts and minds of every person sitting here. He knows everything that you think in secret. He knows everything that you want in in idolatry, which we all have. He knows everything about us. And on his head, John says, are many crowns, many crowns. He's being displayed as the ultimate king, exaltation upon exaltation. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Even in this, there's a kind of mystery about him. He is so exalted and so wonderful that we can't even know all of his names. But he has revealed himself to us. Not only that, but look at verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, this is one of the reasons why we sometimes hesitate to preach texts like this right around Christmas. Because it starts to have this tension. It doesn't quite feel very Christmassy to read about someone, this baby, who who grows up and comes back as a conquering king with a robe dipped in blood. But nevertheless, that is what Christmas is about. That is why he came. There are a few different ways that we can understand this robe dipped in blood, and they're all important. First and foremost, we certainly can see that as a conquering king, he has on his robe the blood of his enemies. But we can also see reflected in this his incredible vengeance and and justice and righteousness for his people, his 
saints who we've already read in the book of Revelation have been martyred by the unbelieving world. That on his robe is their blood. He is coming for them. He is coming to defend them. But also, how does he defend them? How does he defend us? How does he come and win us? There's someone else's blood on his robe. And it's the blood of the lamb. It's his own blood. He comes with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. This is the way the Bible so often speaks of him as the word of God, exalting him as the ultimate declarer of good news. He is the one who makes everything in the world work. He is sovereign. He is wise. He is good. And he is eternally happy because he's in absolute control at every moment. Isn't that a beautiful truth to keep in mind on Christmas morning? That when Jesus came those many years ago into a manger as a baby, he was in absolute perfect control. He looks quite weak. He looks quite easy to defeat. But he is not because of who he actually is. This is an amazing twist in the redemptive plot that we read about in the Bible. Because in one sense, what we see in Jesus' earthly ministry and life is one part of the picture. It's one reality. Maybe we call that the seen reality. And that is that he came as a baby, but he sure doesn't look like a king, not yet. In fact, what he looks like is more like a peasant He actually is born as a baby and he grows up to be a peasant man. He's a a hard worker, but he doesn't have anything. He doesn't come with, with all of those Christmas morning Lexus commercial images of owning everything that he wants and always getting what he wants. That's not the way he appears. In fact, in the end, he's condemned as a criminal, as a blasphemer, and he's executed But that's just the seen reality. There's another reality that we cannot see back behind that one. It's another reality that will be revealed in the future. In fact, Jesus draws attention to this reality that that he is one way in appearance then and he will be another way in appearance to come. In Matthew 8, listen to what he says when one of the scribes wants to follow him. It says, a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, these are two very different realities, aren't they? In the one, in his earthly ministry, before dying and rising and being seated at the right hand of God, awaiting the day that no one knows when he will return, which we're reading about here, he has nowhere to lay his head. One reality. But the real truth is, he doesn't need anywhere to lay his head. The real reality is that he is the king of the universe, and that is unfolded later that becomes revealed to us in the end. But we have the great privilege, do we not, of having the word of God before us so that in our Christmas celebration, we don't have to settle for a baby. 
We don't have to settle for a peasant. We don't have to settle for a condemned criminal or an apparent blasphemer. We settle for no one less than the king of the universe. And in the end, he reveals himself to be that. This is an amazing reality in the Christian life. It's one that we'll always be wrestling with. And it is the the kind of paradox between these two realities. We have to get our hearts and minds around this so that we can see clearly through the fog of our remaining unbelief or what the world may suggest to us about who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about, but to see through that and to really see what the real meaning is so that it might fill our hearts with joy and gladness. We've been praying uh, over recent weeks, the Valley of Vision, this collection of Puritan prayers, responsively praying through these. Well, actually, the one that we read this morning is the namesake of why the book of prayers is called the Valley of Vision. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's a weird paradox even there in the title. The Valley of Vision. If you're like me, you know that when you go into the valley, it is not easy to see. It's hard to see. You're going into the depths of sorrow and despair and difficulty and anxiety. It's a place that we often find ourselves. And in those moments, it is so difficult to see. We can't see where God is. We can't see what he's doing. We don't know where things are going. But the Puritans knew. The Puritans knew that the valley actually is the place of vision. Because it is the place where where everything is stripped away. And now we can come to Christ in ultimate dependence upon him and to fall before him as king. Listen to what even this prayer in short part said this morning. It said, let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. Well, that's the story of Christmas. That's the, that is the story of Jesus. The way down was the way up. That to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. That's what's so beautiful about the gospel, about the redemptive story that Jesus is unfolding, is that in this time of year, when we celebrate the first coming of our King, we go with him into the valley. His whole life was a valley. His whole life was suffering, all the way till the very end, 33 years later, when he is condemned and crucified. But it is in that valley that we come to see. Therefore, we need at this time of year not to allow the things of the world to block out the reality or to veil our vision, but to clear it away. And that's what a text like this does for us. It clears away our vision to see exactly who is Jesus, and he is the exalted word of God. That means that if we want to apply this reality, we need to learn to live by the unseen reality. The unseen reality that we're getting some some hints about in the book of Revelation. We're getting a kind of, of, of revelation presented to us, a vision of what is to come. But nevertheless, until it comes, it is an unseen reality. See, that's the big question in Scripture is how will you live? 
Will you live by the seen reality or will you live by the ultimate unseen reality? This is where we need to be. Because the more that we do this, the more that we will become like children on Christmas Eve. What will children do on Christmas Eve? They will go to bed, hopefully, and fall asleep with this this eager anticipation. But they don't know what they're waiting for. They only know that the one who is preparing something for them now in the night loves them and is doing wonderful and marvelous things in the unseen. They may be able to hear a little bit of it, the bike being put together or the wrapping being cut and taped and placed under the tree, but they don't know what's coming. But in that moment, it is a precious picture of living by the unseen. It's a wonderful picture of what the Christian life needs to be like more for you and me. An anticipation of what God is doing in the unseen and an anticipation that is so great and so glad and so big and so bright that it fills our hearts with vision. A vision like we have never had. So that as we wait for him, as we watch for him, as we work for him, as we worship him, that we are looking forward to the day that he will come and he will finish the work he began when he came at first. Jesus is the exalted word of God. But here's something else that's beautiful. It's particularly beautiful for us, his people. And it is that Jesus is not alone. Notice next that Jesus is actually the captain of heaven's army. Verse 14, Jesus leads in his second coming a vast salvation army of heavenly soldiers. John says, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. They're following him. They're not out in front of him. They're not beside him. They're following him. There's no question that he is the one who is coming on that day to conquer and rule and lead and put all things right, but right behind him in his wake are armies. Now that's an interesting truth. That's an interesting detail. That it doesn't say the army which is in heaven, but the armies. It's as if there are two, and I wonder who those two armies could be. Well, I think the one that probably comes to our minds most quickly is the army of angels who are ever ministering to him. They're ever crying out in his presence, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That they are there with him. They are joining him in his, in his conquering war in the world of the very end. But that's only one army. I think that there's a second army. It also is a heavenly army. And it's an army made up of the saints whom he has purchased with his blood. Angels and believers together with him in that day. Notice the way John talks about them. They're clothed in fine linen. They too have this appearance that has been given to them of of purity and luxury or royalty. They have come to join with this king and to become part of his kingdom. Their clothing is white and clean. They're not soiled by sin. They have been made pure by him. 
And they're following him also on white horses, riding triumphantly like their captain, after their captain, rejoicing for this coming moment that has been planned from before the foundation of the world. They belong to him. They, I believe we, are therefore soldiers in his salvation army. And when you hear that language of Salvation Army, you probably think about the organization, and rightly so. William and Catherine Booth started the Salvation Army as a, a ministry that could, that could meet needs in the world, but could also represent the gospel. This was in the mid to late 1800s. But there's an interesting story about why it came to be known as the Salvation Army. William was, at the time, dictating a letter to George Scott Railton, and William referred to their work together. Railton was, was one of the people in this, this group, this ministry group. And as he was writing it down, William referred to their work as that of a volunteer army. But as soon as George Scott Railton heard this, it bothered him. And it also bothered Bramwell, William Booth's son, who overheard. And he said, I'm no volunteer. I'm a regular. Now, at that time, that's language that we don't really use anymore, but it's the difference between the idea of being merely a volunteer and being actually in an army. Someone who is trained, someone who's committed, someone who will give his or her life. And in that moment, William Booth had Railton cross out volunteer and substitute salvation. Because this is the way they saw themselves. This is a question about how you and I see ourselves. When you come to the word of God and you see yourself in it, it changes how you see your life. And that's what we need, isn't it? That's what should happen when you come to verse 14. As you're looking forward to the coming, to the coming king, you have to see yourself where you are if you belong to him. You are with him. You are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. You are riding on a white horse with him. He has you among him. You are no volunteer. You are a regular. This is what Christ communicates to us at every step in his word. He tells us that we belong to him. We really belong to him. We are not an afterthought. In fact, before the foundation of the world, he made a sovereign, glad choice to choose us to be with him now and to be with him then. Now, it may be true that in this time, in these ways, the world may look at us and say, what are they? Nothing, weak, foolish. The whole world looks at the church that way, but it doesn't bother us. Because we're living by the unseen. Yes, yes, it looks very weak and foolish. It looks so ignorant and out of touch. We look very archaic. But that's only in the seen reality. In the unseen reality, we know the truth. And when Christ comes, we will be revealed with him in glory. That's what the Bible says. That when the world sees Christ in his glory with his army, they will no longer patronize him or his people as some kangaroo king and kangaroo people and his army as second class. But when he comes again, there will be another shift of the plot. 
that though he came first alone, he will come again with legions of followers the second time. This is the crisis moment of the world. Because every person in this room and in this world must, because of this verse, choose a side. Every person must decide, who will you follow? How do you see yourself? To whom do you belong? And to what degree do you belong? This raises questions for for Christians everywhere about what kind of Christian am I really? Am I a volunteer? Am I sort of committed, sort of not? He seems like a good guy. I feel like I should be forgiven, but... In the end, he's the afterthought. That's what it means to be a volunteer. Or are you a regular? Are you someone who sees himself or sees herself when you look in the mirror as someone who belongs to Christ? That he is your all. He is your king. He is your savior. You belong to him. You are waiting on a white horse that he will give to you. You are waiting on clean linen clothes that are white and dazzling that he will give to you and that you will be with him on this day and you cannot wait. There is a big difference between those two things and it does matter which that you are. That is why Jesus, in his earthly ministry and teaching, was so serious about following him. He was so clear, even though so many people could not see it at the time and they couldn't get it. Listen again to what he says in Matthew 16. You heard this earlier this morning. It's good for our hearts to hear it again. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. That's what the world wants to do. Save life. That is in some way what the volunteers want to do. But what does he say? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is an incredible promise. This is the promise of verse 14, that whoever loses his life, loses her life for Christ, will find it, and that life will not be shabby. That life will be glorious. That life will not be sad. That life will be full of gladness, even in the midst of sorrow. And that will be the glorious life we receive in his second coming. That's the ultimate best life that we will live. And we will live it then. He goes on and says, For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What will a person give in exchange for his soul once he's lost it? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and his angels and will then repay every person according to his deeds. Ready yourself. Use every moment that you have. Use every celebration, every big, bright Christian holiday like Christmas, Christmas Eve, Easter, and every day in between to to ready yourself 
so that you are ready to be a regular in his army. This means raising our commitment to him by delighting in him more and more and more. You see, that is exactly what the book of Revelation is intended to do. Raise our rejoicing. As Christ is exalted, our joy rises. As he is lifted up, our happiness increases. As he is lifted up, our confidence in him grows. The things of this world become simultaneously dim and bright at the same time because he changes everything. So let's ready ourselves We have such an opportunity at Christmas uh, in our families, in our homes, whoever we're with, to make it a moment when we remember what it's really all about. It is really all about Jesus who was born to win a war. This is the last truth that we'll see this morning is that Jesus, in addition to being the exalted word of God and the captain of heaven's army, that he is also, he will be seen and known as the conquering king and Lord of all creation. Now, this is where it gets a little dark at Christmas time. Uh, this is one of those reasons why it can be hard to stick to these texts when everything is cheerful and bright because this is hard. This is the hard reality, is that while Jesus' victory, uh, victorious return will bless his people, verse 14, it also will curse his enemies. It is a war, and he is coming to win it. And you cannot have a war without enemies, and Jesus has them. But he's calling out to them now, people all around the world, who are currently his enemies, just like I was prior to to 1995 when I came to faith in Jesus. He's calling people around the world to belong to him. One day he will be the conquering king. Listen to what it says about his victorious return. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Wow. The sharp sword is so that he may strike down the unbelieving nations of the earth make no mistake that Jesus is not in the end meek and mild. He is the conquering king and Lord of all creation. John goes on and says that he will rule them with a rod of iron. This again is that exaltation language is exalting his his absolute control and his his kingship over his, his kingdom and his world. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That will be an astounding day. He returns because these are the things that he will do. He will show himself to be what these verses say when you read King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is superiority language. It is a way of declaring without question that he is superior, that no one else can take his designation. Even though there may be others who pretend to be great like him, they are never greatest like him. There was, in fact, even one Greek king named Alexander. You know what the title is, the Great. Isn't it interesting that in our world, 
despite even the arrogance of every human heart, that while we may go around and call ourselves great, we very seldom go around and say that we're the greatest. Or if we do, we say it with anxiety because we know someone else could come knock us off the mountain and that person would become the greatest. And so we shy away from that language. Even Alexander the Great, he's not called Alexander the Greatest. But nevertheless, it's a way to, to show how great you are. And there is no one like him. Even Alexander the Great, he was known both for his military genius and his diplomatic skills and handling the various populations of his region in which he conquered. In 15 years, he never lost a battle. There are 70 cities named after him and one named after his horse. They say he even smelled great. Think about that. At that time, people would go around and say, he smells great. They said even his breath smells great. But he's not Alexander the Greatest because he died. He was only great for so long until the fever came and took him away. But not with Jesus. He died, he rose again, and he will come again. And listen to this. His greatestness will be seen in the salvation of his people and also in the consuming wrath against his enemies. The Bible is doing the world an enormous gracious favor to declare these things ahead of time because they are incredible. Listen to the clarity of verses 17 through 19. John says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice and sang to all the birds that fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great feast of God. These are vultures. They are coming to feed on the corpses of the dead so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves and great and small. Ugh! Flesh, 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 flesh. Why is it saying that? It's reminding us of what we are. You are flesh. So is Jesus, but he's not that kind. He is the greatest. And if you want to live, if you want to live forever in ultimate joy and satisfaction, you must come to him. Because anyone who doesn't, when the age of grace is through, will be in verses 17 through 19. On Christmas morning, we are going to finish this chapter. We're going to finish with verses 17. With, with verse 19. But nevertheless, remembering how he came and why he came and to celebrate together his ultimate reign in which we have plunged ourselves by faith in him. We look forward to his ultimate victory. But for now, as we prepare for this coming week and the days ahead, let me encourage all of us again to fix our hearts on trusting him gladly as he gladly works in the unseen. Not many people know this, but God is working happily at every moment in human history. 
because he has all of the sovereignty, all of the wisdom, and all of the goodness to do everything that's necessary to bring the very best of all possible worlds into existence. And that is the world where he reigns as king and we, his people, belong to him. So the call of Christmas is for us to fix our hearts on that reality. Don't let the lights and the colors and the presents, as awesome as they are, don't let it fog or cloud your vision. But see that Jesus is not only come, but that he is coming. If you belong to him, you will be with him. And every day until then, we anticipate that knowing that he is working and working and working and working with a smile on his heart for us, through us, with us. That is the joy that we have. That's what we want Christmas to be about. This year and years to come, let's stand together and pray and thank God for Jesus, who is our King, who is our Savior, who is the satisfier of our hearts. Heaven, we come before you uh, yet again with these truths on our hearts and minds. And we ask you that you would, by your spirit, blow away the fog, clear our vision so that we can see you more clearly. Oh God, we pray that you would cause us to delight in this season and every good gift and every beautiful picture and all of the lights and the food and the fellowship and the celebration and and the rest, and the the late nights, and the laughing, and the fun. Increase our joy in that. We pray along the way that you would keep on our hearts and minds something even more joyful. And that is not simply that you have come, but you are coming again. And that you are coming to rescue us, and to satisfy us, and to take us to be with you. Make us people who delight in you, who are happy in you and who are eager for your return. Even as we sing now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.